Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hello, and welcome to Article 19. My name is Marty Malloy. I am the Chief of Staff and Catalyst at Tamman, and I'm also the host for our conversation. Today will be an all Tamman cast with my co-host Amanda Roper, Program Manager of Tamman's Accessibility Initiatives. Hi, Amanda. Hey, hey. And we are joined today by our head honcho, Michael Mangos, CEO and co-founder of Tamman. Hey, Mike. Hello, Mr. Malloy. So before we begin, I would like to set the stage for our listeners. This conversation and this podcast is born from the decision at Tamman to state clearly and plainly that access to information is a human right. The developers and designers at Tamman work hard to make sure that no matter what use constraint a user may have, be it due to a temporary, situational, or permanent condition or disability, that they will be able to access the information designed and built by Tamman. This podcast is a call for others to join in a bigger conversation with us. We want to build, in fact, we do build the inclusive web every day. But to do that, we need all of us working together, learning together to do that. Thanks for listening. Let's get this conversation started. With that, I really want to bring the two of you in, Amanda and Mike. It has been a long work day as we're recording. So how are you both doing? Getting hungry. We're approaching the dinner hour, as I know Amanda's cats are too. <laughs> yes, uh, cheese is right here beside me. She's just ready for a good old big bowl of wet kibble. I don't think I knew that your cat's name was Cheese. That's adorable. Cheese is very loud. She's a little shy, though. I don't see her on camera too often, but she is definitely voice in the background. Yes, she's attached at our hips, but she's kind of camera shy. So let's go ahead and kick this off. Amanda, I need an easy question to start off. What do you have for us today? Oh, yeah. I'm excited to hear the answers on this one. So we're working from home all the time. We spend however many hours at our home offices now. Uh, what's one thing you especially love about your home office? Could be anything, big or small. I know in my home office, I spent a lot of time setting it up. Actually, prior to the pandemic, not realizing I was going to be in it all the time <laughs> for a year. And I have two windows facing different directions. I get a ton of sunlight. And then to sort of continue the beautiful light that I've created in the room by its positioning and the window treatments, I actually invested in some Philips Hue lights. That's not an endorsement. But I bought these Hue lights and I, and I changed the color temperature and intensity of the light throughout the day so that I continue to both complement the outdoor light during the day and then transition it to a more warm tone to create a mood in the evening as the sun sets. And I just love this light experience that I've created in my space. That may be the most Mangosian answer to a question <laughs> I've ever heard. That's amazing. I didn't know that about you. You've never shared that. That's crazy. Mine is much more simple. So I've had for a long time this petrified wood ball, and it has become my personal fidget 
thing. And I never had it in a professional office, but I always had it at home. And whenever I was doing stuff at home, it's become my constant companion. And it allows me to just have something to play with whenever I'm on the phone or whenever I'm talking. The problem is it's petrified wood. And so sometimes I miss or it rolls off my desk or I throw it really harder than I thought. And it makes very loud crashing and banging. But and, other and than Marty, that, isn't, isn't petrified wood basically just a rock? Yeah, it's like this really heavy. Oh, okay polished rock it's awesome it's become my like cheese is yours it is my close companion to my work day what about you amanda what do you have in your office there that you love you know marty i've, I've always thought that was a, a rubber band ball until you explained that it's it's not so that's pretty cool it doesn't make as much sense to have a rock in your office but you know i that's great i'm, I'm happy you have that my favorite thing in my office, I suppose, is this weird uh, desk setup that I have. So my partner, Brian, and I, we actually share this eight-foot-long desk, and we made it ourselves from an old door that we just turned on its side, drilled a few holes in it, and, you know, again, we didn't really know how permanent this was going to be moving out here to Philadelphia. We didn't, we didn't have anything, and this was one of our first, like, bigger house projects together. Although it's not the prettiest, it's my favorite thing in the office. So I'm glad we all have our favorite office things, large and smaller and technical and old. <laughs> Very exciting. So we spend so much time in this office working at a company where accessibility is at the forefront of our minds and at the forefront of our practice day in and day out. So Mike, why should anyone care about accessibility? You know, I've heard a lot of arguments for this around how much the disabled community spends, how much money persons with disabilities spend, you know, how much they contribute to the workforce, how much they make up of the population. I think the statistics are great. I don't want to begrudge anybody those things. Those were never the compelling arguments for me. So I can't speak for why everyone else should care. I can tell you why I care. I believe everybody is worth something. Everybody's worth a lot. Each person needs to be treated with the same dignity, the same respect, and be included in the same conversations. And for me, it doesn't need more than that. I don't need a monetary reason. I don't think it requires a statistical reason. It's just it's the right thing to do. If we're going to treat people of different ages with equal respect, and we're going to treat people of different races and genders with equal respect, we should treat people with the same respect and dignity and equality, regardless of their capabilities or their proclivities or sort of which way they lean. You know, having family members who kind of fall on different spots on the neurodiversity spectrum, it's just become a really interesting place for me to think about them in new ways since I started my journey learning about accessibility. And so for me, I kind of leave the statistics aside. Sometimes I call on them when I need to, but if we're having a frank conversation about it, people are all valuable. <laughs> yeah. End of story. You know, just to piggyback on that a little bit, Mike, I remember when you first talked to me about this thing called digital accessibility and looking it up and feeling an immediate connection to it myself. It wasn't something that was on my radar in any way, right? Like with any sort of privilege, the web was the web. It's I would Google. I wouldn't even think about it as a tool or have any awareness towards what someone else might be going through as they access information. And it was such a gift that you gave that to me because now, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but it has reshaped how I view many things, not just on the web, because I think I'm going to be there, right? I mean, I'm selfish. Like I know I'm going to have vision issues and cognitive issues. Like it's going to affect all of us at some point or another. So even from that, like purely self-interested space, I'm like, oh man, we better get this right. <laughs> 
Yeah, look, those are some of the classical responses. And I think they're all really good too. There's sort of two things I want to pull out of what you just said. One is when I first encountered the concept that disabilities are not all permanent and that all of us, mm. every one of us at some point encounters a situational disability or a temporary disability, right? If we're all lucky enough to live to uh, ripe old ages, Many of us, if not every single one of us, at some point, if you live long enough, you're going to have some additional needs for access. And I think it's really important to just recognize that it's the WHO's definition of a disability has changed over the years. In the 80s, it was a medical diagnosis in semi-permanent situation. And now it's if you have trouble accessing a thing. You don't need a medical diagnosis to then also be considered disabled or need accessibility assistance to get to information. So there's this paradigm shift that has occurred in many circles that hasn't permeated through all cultures and through all people, but like there's a huge shift. And so, you know, I guess if you want me to get more theoretical about it or more academic about it, it's that the world is changing. And if we all want to be part of that new world, don't resist the shift that's going on, right? That's sort of the one thing I want to point out. The second thing I want to tease out of what you brought up was, you know, I, I talked about why anybody should care about accessibility. And that was really about why should people, why should anyone care about people who need access? But there's also a different aspect to it, which, which you brought up, which is digital accessibility. And specifically digital accessibility being an expression of creating equal access. Mm. And so, mm. you know, where yes. we've taken time in is, yes, we want to build the inclusive web. Yes, we're working on that every day and we want to find willing partners that want to join in that conversation and in that work. But specifically, we've chosen as a business to double down and focus on the digital accessibility aspect of essentially an inclusive world. So I think there's a lot of reasons why people should care about digital accessibility as a subset of just overall access to information. So we could have a whole nother podcast about that. Maybe I'll save my answer for that one for another day. <laughs> we could go to the next question. So as we're talking about including people, bringing people in, Mike, how did you get brought into this world? How did your personal accessibility journey begin? I would love to say that I had some sort of epiphany or eureka moment that happened outside of work and that I knew a person or something happened to a family member and then I got involved. It isn't quite as glamorous as that. I had a client who came to me and said, hey, you know, we're part of our company is starting to explore digital accessibility, you know, in some of our other product lines because we don't normally deal with it there. And, you know, do you know anything about that? And I was like, well, I'm a technologist. I've been an IT guy, I've done software programming, but I haven't really encountered digital accessibility. I mean, maybe heard the terms, but never really had to engage with it. And it piqued my curiosity. I started looking into it. This is really a thing. <laughs> you know, one, it's not new. What rock have I been living under all this time? <laughs> you know, this is about five, six years ago. And the more I started to dig and you know, I started to uncover more information and more people, this really resonated with me on an emotional level and on a values level. So my morals and my ethics kicked in. I want to be a part of this movement. I had no reason to, again, like Marty mentioned, through his privilege, sometimes you don't know that you're not a part of a thing. And suddenly when I pulled that privilege away, and I started to see other people's situations in a totally different light or from a different perspective, I kind of got hooked. I then couldn't consume enough of like, 
what does it mean? And I went through this journey of like, first I had this mindset shift that occurred. So then I built up some skills, but once I got a certain level of the skills, it made me more aware and it allowed me to expand my mindset even further. I was able to sort of broaden my mindset more, which then showed me more of what I didn't know. And then I went and built more skills around that. And I've been on this sort of progressive ladder climb for years now, and it's never ending. And it's a joy. And it has really shaped more than just the direction of Tam. It has shaped me. How long ago did this initial mindset change happen for you? Like, what were you at Tamman? Had you had founded Tamman at that point? And in general, what were like the first steps for Tamman turning towards accessibility? Jeff, my business partner, and I started Tamman about 14 years ago. So we definitely have been running Tamman for many years. I guess it was about five, six, seven years ago. I forget exactly the year that I started exploring it. And it didn't happen all at once, but I remember that that first year was sort of this explosive growth period for me as an individual. And of course, you know, in a small business, oftentimes the businesses become expressions of their owners. <laughs> and so the more I got into this and the more it became this like passion project of mine, the more it integrated itself with everything that we do at Tamman. It didn't happen immediately. And certainly we were not building 100% accessible websites that first year. We were doing what we thought was pretty well. And then every year since then, I realized there's a lot more we could be doing. <laughs> and so we keep raising our own bar. But yeah, it's only been like a five or six year journey for me. It has not been something that I've been doing my whole career and I'm in my mid forties now. So, you know, again, embarrassingly, can't believe it took me till I was almost 40 years old to discover this. But yet you're finding that other businesses are still discovering this. I mean, we are, I should say, finding that all the time, right? I mean, that sure. people are coming to this and the initial steps that you would give to any business to say, would you put them on that same mindset, skill set, ladder journey, or would you, oh, would you introduce it to them in a different way? Yeah. It wasn't even until this past year that I even put together the vocabulary around the mindset, skill set ladder. And so I think it's really interesting that as long as I've been doing this, I, I still continue to think up or encounter new ideas and new ways to talk about it. But a week doesn't go by where I don't talk to a new business or you know some colleague out there in industry where maybe they've heard about digital accessibility, but they really don't know the first thing about it. And it's not their fault. Like I don't really blame everybody for that, right? But yeah, when I talk to anybody, I really have doubled down on this mindset, skill set, ladder concept because it really does require a mindset to effectively employ a new skill set. Sure. I've watched a number of people out there in the industry, or maybe not in the industry, I guess people that aren't in the industry, that are outside the industry, they're looking for our kinds of services, you know, talking to them where they want to jump right into building skills. And they want to essentially treat it like a checklist, like a thing they have to do. Like, oh, I'm sending this off to the printer. What are my specs? It's not really about that right? Sure, you can get some of it that way. And that may become a serviceable model for a little while. But there's also a point at which so much of making a good accessible design requires an awareness of the people that you're trying to communicate with. And if you don't first build the mindset, it's really hard to know how to implement the skill set. You know, I've also seen a number of people as they're starting this journey where adding all these new skills, if they don't start with a mindset shift first, the skills become this big burden. It becomes really hard. It's like it just, all the work becomes additive to what they're doing and they start to drown in it. And if they just first started with a mindset shift, Maybe they don't change where they're starting from, but they change the direction in which they're pointing. And they start walking down that path. They realize it's actually no more steps to walk. It's the same 
length journey, you're just taking a different path. And I think that's where the mindset coming before skill set and then ping-ponging there really has such a dramatic impact on people's adoption of new work styles. So, Mike, I'm going to kick off this last question in this segment to sort of all of us, because I, I mentioned it earlier in the in the conversation that once you introduced it to me and once you sort of gave me as your colleague this mindset shift, I started reinterpreting the world around me with this accessibility mind shift. So oh, yeah. I'm going to shoot sort of the question over to you first and then Amanda. How are you reinterpreting the world around you? because of digital accessibility and accessibility in the ADA in general? It's probably not too different from the shift that I made when we started building web applications and websites that touch the public. I wasn't really in QA, I was, I was in IT, building data centers and configuring servers and doing tech support. And when we started working on these front-end applications and these front-end websites, I became very attuned to looking for language and brand and fluidity and alignment and a lot of little things that probably could be diagnosed as OCD or anal retentive, you know, that are not diagnosed in me, but that I'm sure have just found a beautiful, fertile ground to flourish. Okay. Once I started adopting these new principles around digital accessibility, I now see everything through that lens. I mean, everything becomes a pattern recognition for me of, I now see inaccessible patterns in every website that I visit and every application that I use. And then it's gone beyond that. Like I have a beautiful luxury car that I drive that I spoiled myself with a few years ago and I get in it. I'm like, I love this car, but you know what? That radio interface is not particularly accessible. <laughs> and then I just, I can't help but start to extend it beyond digital accessibility and start looking at everything from a more inclusive lens. You know, even things in my house, like oh, I'm having trouble opening this window. What happens if I ever injure my shoulder? How do people open windows if they have an injured shoulder? You know, there isn't a thing that I can't interpret without understanding how could I make this or how would we one make this a more inclusive experience. It's kind of become a curse, but yeah. also yeah. a wonderful, delightful curse. Wonderful, <laughs> delightful blessing. Yeah. Amanda, what about you? So I can totally relate to just like seeing it everywhere and every single website that I experience is just now I'm looking through that new lens of is this accessible? Is this not accessible? Oh, this website's really annoying. It's probably not accessible. Oh man, um, I found myself putting on that hat of that person who is now commenting and putting in the chat, emailing them, giving them email feedback of, hey, like, did you know that someone who's using a screen reader cannot make a purchase on your website? Haha, <laughs> like, do you need some help with that? And I found myself like putting on that hat of just like trying to be an advocate for these people who don't have access but in turn it's not only helping people that have disabilities or whether they're temporary or permanent but it's also like it's helping small businesses as well for me personally i've worked with a lot of artists in the past and i have a lot of friends who are artists and it's not something that they consider when they are going to promote their work online However, there's no ill intention there. They never set out to build something that couldn't be enjoyed by everyone. So 
going back to Mike's mindset and skill set ladder, what I'm finding is like a lot of people already have the mindset. It's just giving them that first basic set of tools and allowing them to build their skill set from there. I'm just going to echo both of you. I'm not going to belabor the thing, but once you give someone the vocabulary to think about something or the awareness to start to see something, you do have that pattern recognition, Mike, and you see it everywhere. And I know that that's been the case for me where I'm constantly seeing and experiencing things and wondering, well, how would someone who has a broken arm, how would someone who has this issue going on right now, how would they deal with this particular situation? So that leads me to something that's very exciting, which is the fact that there is this Tamman Accessibility Initiative. There is this building of awareness, this idea that we can help other companies be able to make their digital properties, their web applications more accessible. So I really want to know from the two of you, because you're so involved in it every day, what are you most excited about when you think about our new initiative, the Tamman Accessibility Initiative? I'm really excited about the education or the professional development of the people that we connect with. I've always been drawn to education and, you know, Marty, we've talked about this many times outside of the podcast space that if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably would be teaching somewhere. hundred <laughs> percent. You know, you'd be a professor. So yeah. I love to watch sort of the, the expansion of minds. And so whenever we get to touch clients figuratively, of course, when we get to interact with them and I get to watch their professional development grow, their mindset grow, their skill set grow, that to me is the thing that gets me most excited and is the most rewarding, at least as far as the day-to-day work goes. And Amanda, you are the heart an engine behind things happening with this. So I know it's going to be really hard for you to pick one thing, but if you had to, what's the one thing that you're most excited about right now? You know, I had to think about this question for a while because it's a step back from being in the thick of it every day, but I actually have a pretty similar answer to Mike, and that's just creating these uh, learning opportunities for people in the business world and converting people to become digital accessibility advocates, empowering them with the tools that they need. They might not stay at that company for the rest of their life, but hopefully they're able to be inspired and be empowered and then continue to spread that in the next places that they go. Um, We always say uh, we can't build the accessible web on our own and we always need advocates and partners with us. And so I think that's why I'm the most excited about educational aspect because we are helping to build the inclusive web. The visual I have in my head is the ripple in the pond. We're not the only ones creating ripples, but the more ripples you make, you end up having waves. You know, and you end up reaching the far shores. And I think that's where education for me is always the most interesting place to be. I love making stuff. I love building things. I love it when there's that satisfaction of we start an effort and then we finish that effort. But there is something that's potentially more durable kind of reward that is we taught somebody something. They went out in the world and they taught others and they're making an impact and we helped affect that. You know, that, that's the part that's so exciting. And that's the thing for me, it's this podcast. I am so excited to bring on so many other perspectives and to hear from other people making ripples that this audio format, I just think is really, really exciting in that education space. So let's jump to our final segment, three questions that we are going to ask folks at the end of our conversations. So Amanda, why don't you hit the first one there? What is one personal accommodation that you make for yourself? Yeah, for me, I'm not easily distracted in general. I find that I can focus very well. But the one thing that can distract me beyond anything else is sounds, little sounds. 
and I go to great lengths to make a quiet workspace for myself. I don't want to hear the whooshing of the air conditioning system. If there's the tiniest squeak, I have to oil it. <laughs> so I accommodate myself by creating a very silent workspace. And when we were in the office and we were doing the fit out and I was designing the space, I, I paid a lot of extra money. And thankfully my partner was on board with this <laughs> to get soundproof glass and other things on the office windows. Like the front wall of each office is glass and it was floor to ceiling. And we wanted to be soundproof because I wanted to go into my office, close the door and hear nothing. <laughs> so that that's is my personal accommodation. <laughs> hilarious because mine is the exact opposite in that I must have noises around me. I need that to focus. And when we were in the office, I remember talking to you about this, Mike, and it was just like this, how are we so compatible in so many ways? And yet we are so <laughs> completely different in this one really important thing. So I have music on all the time. I have other little sounds and things that I make. And what I've found is even when the music or other things aren't on, I make these little noises in my own mouth. I'll just be clicking along or doing like some other tapping thing. So I just have to have noise in my space. That's so funny. Amanda, so what about you? What's your personal accommodation? I actually was thinking about the assistive tech that I use every day, and I didn't really consider it assistive tech until I found that language here at Tamman. But I wear glasses. I have a really terrible, terrible prescription, and that is my personal accommodation layered in with a lot of the Flux app, which uh, kind of like dims my screen so it doesn't mm. hurt my eyes too much. It helps me stay focused all day. You would appreciate the lighting situation in my office. <laughs> it sounds like a it's dream. A like, it sounds so cool. I have no windows in here and it drives me crazy sometimes. So I'm curious because I work with both of you pretty closely. What's something that keeps you both up at night? Something about work that keeps you up at night? What keeps me awake at night, I suppose, is like when there just seems to be like an endless amount of stuff to get done. And I feel like that's happened to me at every every job, whenever there's just like that long to-do list and I, I'm not sure if it's going to get done on time. That's when I stay up and worry a little bit. I thought you were going to say that what would keep you up would be the thought that you might wake up in the morning to an email from me or a Slack message from me that's asking for some enormous thing that tons of complexity and it's due by the end of the day. <laughs> nah, she's got that. No. <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, the thing that keeps me up, and this is not related to digital accessibility at all, but it is related to being a small business owner. And there's something about being a small business owner that is really different than, I think, working in a bigger company with more supports and or more protocols and regulations is that I really do feel like every member of the company is family, or at least as close as you can get to having family members that aren't in your family. And not that I sit around worrying about everybody, but what does keep me up when I do have trouble falling asleep, which is very rare, but it's always around something thinking about, am I supporting the staff well enough? Am I creating an environment where people want to work and where they feel like they can bring their best selves to the office every day? So that is the thing I think that I probably spend more time thinking about at the end of the workday than anything else. I think for me, Mike, certainly I think you and Jeff, your partner at Tamman, have created a space that is so inclusive in and of itself, which dovetails nicely into the work that we do. But 
that it's really created a, a wonderful space for the people. And being the chief of staff, I feel a particular responsibility for making sure that folks have everything that they need to be successful. That's the thing that really keeps me up. That it's I know that we can handle most business things, but it's going to be that personal situation that crosses my desk. And those are the ones that stay with you, much, stay with me anyway, that much more than, than the business problems, because those are opportunities that have solutions. And I have a team of people that I know I get to work with on that. But it's when I know that somebody's going through something that might take them away from their work and it's serious and all that. And wanting to make sure that we're supporting them in the way that we do um, is really, really important. So the final question here is uh, that we will ask of everyone is what is one recommendation for a game, book, movie, or TV show right now? I'm going to kick that one off. And there's so many, there's so many great recommendations that could be out there. But for me, I have just finished a book series by the author Simon Scarrow, who traces these two Roman legionaries, actually centurions, all the way through a whole series of, of their travails. And it is the most escapism, wonderful historical fiction reading. I just, I can't thank Mr. Scarrow enough for writing it because he has given me this gift where every night I'm reading about Macro and Cato and just I'm in ancient Rome and I'm so happy. So that is my recommendation for all of you. It's it's the Eagle series, uh, Under the Eagle series is what it's called. And it's really, really great. If you're into Rome, if you're into history, and it's so easy and so delightful, it's like candy. What about you, Michael? What's our what's your uh, recommendation today? Yeah, it's, it's, it's my newest game. It was uh, part of a Christmas present from my six-year-old son, and it's called Tokyo Clash. And basically up to four players act as kaiju, on the game board and try to battle to see who's the king of the kaiju. It is fantastic. It's got Godzilla, Mothra, you know, like, do I need to go any, any further? No. It's got King Ghidorah, you know, it's, you know, all I hope is that enough people buy more copies of it so that the makers build an expansion because I want more kaiju. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds the game. so much fun. And I can't wait to play it with you at some point. How about you, Amanda? Uh, so, Brian and I have, uh, you guys know that we've been immersed in the Expanse series and books forever, but now we're coming up like on, on the end of the Expanse book series. And I, I just, it's still a solid recommendation from me. We're on book number eight out of nine. The ninth book comes out. It's the fifth season of the TV series just ended as well. And a lot of people are looking for like that kind of like escape from the reality of COVID life. And I... I love sci-fi and I, I think it's a it's the perfect escape for me right now. Well guys, thank you so much. I appreciate both of you so much every day, but definitely for sharing your thoughts today, Mike. I really, really appreciate it. This is great. And I am, as I said, very excited about this podcast. I really want to keep doing it again and again and again. So let's keep the conversation going, shall we? Here, here. Thank you, Marty, for hosting. Thank you, Amanda, for uh, helping lead a lot of this conversation.